Section 38 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1F, Section 38, Chapter 70, Part 3. Lady Lyle was widow of one of the regicides, who had enjoyed great favor and authority under Cromwell, and who, having fled, after the restoration, to Lausanne, Switzerland, was there assassinated by three Irish ruffians, who hoped to make their fortune by this piece of service. His widow was now prosecuted for harboring two rebels the day after the Battle of Sedgemoor, and Jefferies pushed on the trial with an unrelenting violence. In vain did the aged prisoner plead that these criminals had been put into no proclamation, had been convicted by no verdict, nor could any man be denominated a traitor till the sentence of some legal court was passed upon him that it appeared not by any proof that she was so much acquainted with the guilt of the persons or had heard of their joining the rebellion of monmouth that though she might be obnoxious on account of her family it was well known that her heart was ever loyal and that no person in england had shed more tears for that tragical event in which her husband had unfortunately borne too great a share and that the same principles which she herself had ever embraced she had carefully instilled into her son, and had at that very time sent him to fight against those rebels whom she was now accused of harboring. Though these arguments did not move Jefferies, they had influence on the jury. Twice they seemed inclined to bring in a favorable verdict. They were as often sent back with menaces and reproaches, and at last were constrained to give sentence against the prisoner notwithstanding all the applications for pardon the cruel sentence was executed the king said that he had given jefferies a promise not to pardon her an excuse which could serve only to aggravate the blame against himself it might have been hoped that by all these bloody executions a rebellion so precipitate so ill-supported and of such short duration would have been sufficiently expiated but nothing could satiate the spirit of rigor which possessed the administration. Even those multitudes who received pardon were obliged to atone for their guilt by fines which reduced them to beggary, or where their former poverty made them incapable of paying, they were condemned to cruel whippings or severe imprisonments. Nor could the innocent escape the hands, no less rapacious than cruel, of the chief justice, Prideaux, a gentleman of Devonshire, being thrown into prison, and dreading the severe and arbitrary spirit which at the time met with no control, was obliged to buy his liberty of Jefferies at the price of fifteen thousand pounds, though he could never so much as learn the crime of which he was accused. Good enough, the seditious under-sheriff of London, who had been engaged in the most bloody and desperate part of the Rye House conspiracy, was taken prisoner after the Battle of Sedgemoor, and resolved to save his own life by an accusation of Cornish, the sheriff, whom he knew to be extremely obnoxious to the court. 
Colonel Rumsey joined him in the accusation, and the prosecution was so hastened that the prisoner was tried, condemned, and executed in the space of a week. The perjury of the witnesses appeared immediately after, and the king seemed to regret the execution of Cornish. He granted his estate to his family, and condemned the witnesses to perpetual imprisonment. The injustice of this sentence against Cornish was not wanted to disgust the nation with the court. The continued rigor of the other executions had already impressed a universal hatred against the ministers of justice, attended with compassion for the unhappy sufferers, who, as they had been seduced into this crime by mistaken principles, bore their punishment with the spirit and zeal of martyrs. The people might have been willing on this occasion to distinguish between the king and his ministers, but care was taken to prove that the latter had done nothing but what was agreeable to their master. Jeffreys, on his return, was immediately, for those eminent services, created a peer, and was soon after vested with the dignity of chancellor. It is pretended, however, with some appearance of authority, that the king was displeased with these cruelties, and put a stop to them by orders, as soon as proper information of them was conveyed to him. We must now take a view of the state of affairs in Scotland, where the fate of Argyle had been decided before that of Monmouth. Immediately after the king's accession, a parliament had been summoned at Edinburgh, and all affairs were there conducted by the Duke of Queensbury, the Commissioner, and the Earl of Perth, Chancellor. The former had resolved to make an entire surrender of the liberties of his country, but was determined still to adhere to its religion. The latter entertained no scruple of paying court even by the sacrifice of both. But no courtier, even the most prostitute, could go further than the Parliament itself towards a resignation of their liberties. In a vote, which they called an offer of duty, after adopting the fabulous history of a hundred and eleven Scottish monarchs, they acknowledged that all these princes, by the primary and fundamental law of the state, had been vested with a solid and absolute authority. They declared their abhorrence of all principles and positions derogatory to the king's sacred, supreme, sovereign, absolute power, of which none, they said, whether single persons or collective bodies, can participate but in dependence on him, and by commission from him. They promised that the whole nation, between sixteen and sixty, shall be in readiness for his majesty's service, where and as off as it shall be his royal pleasure to require them. And they annexed the whole excise, both of inland and foreign commodities, for ever to the crown. All the other acts of this assembly savored of the same spirit. They declared it treason for any person to refuse the test, if tendered by the council. To defend the obligation of the covenant subjected a person to the same penalty. To be present at any conventicle was made punishable with death and confiscation of movables. Even such as refused to give testimony, either in cases of treason or nonconformity, were declared equally punishable as if guilty of those very crimes, an excellent prelude to all the rigors of an inquisition. It must be confessed that nothing could equal the abject servility of the Scottish nation during this period but the arbitrary severity of the administration. 
It was in vain that Argyle summoned a people so lost to all sense of liberty, so degraded by repeated indignities, to rise in vindication of their violated laws and privileges. Even those who declared for him were, for the greater part, his own vassals, men who, if possible, were still more sunk in slavery than the rest of the nation. He arrived, after a prosperous voyage, in Argyleshire, attended by some fugitives from Holland, among the rest by Sir Patrick Hume, a man of mild dispositions, who had been driven to this extremity by a continued train of oppression. The Privy Council was beforehand apprised of Argyle's intentions. The whole militia of the kingdom, to the number of twenty-two thousand men, were already in arms, and a third part of them, with the regular forces, were on their march to oppose him. All the considerable gentry of his clan were thrown into prison, and two ships of war were on the coast to watch his motions. Under all these discouragements he yet made a shift, partly from terror, partly from affection, to collect and arm a body of about two thousand five hundred men, but soon found himself surrounded on all sides with insuperable difficulties. His arms and ammunition were seized, his provisions cut off. The Marquis of Athole pressed him on one side, Lord Charles Murray on another, the Duke of Gordon hung upon his rear, the Earl of Dunbarton met him in front. His followers daily fell off from him, but Argyle, resolute to persevere, broke at last with the shattered remains of his troops into a disaffected part of the Low Countries, which he had endeavored to allure to him by declarations for the covenant. No one showed either courage or inclination to join him, and his small and still decreasing army, after wandering about for a little time, was at last defeated and dissipated without an enemy. Argyle himself was seized and carried to Edinburgh, where, after enduring many indignities with a gallant spirit, he was publicly executed. He suffered on the former unjust sentence which had been passed upon him. The rest of his followers either escaped or were punished by transportation. Rumbold and Ayloff, two Englishmen who had attended Argyle on this expedition, were executed. The king was so elated with this continued tide of prosperity that he began to undervalue even an English parliament, at all times formidable to his family, and from his speech to that assembly which he had assembled early in the winter, he seems to have thought himself exempted from all rules of prudence or necessity of dissimulation. He plainly told the two houses that the militia which had formerly been so much magnified was now found, by experience in this last rebellion, to be altogether useless, and he required a new supply, in order to maintain those additional forces which he had levied. He also took notice that he had employed a great many Catholic officers, and that he had, in their favor, dispensed with the law requiring the test to be taken by every one that possessed any public office. And to cut short all opposition, he declared that, having reaped the benefit of their service during such times of danger, he was determined neither to expose them afterwards to disgrace, nor himself, in case of another rebellion, to the want of their assistance. Such violent aversion did this Parliament bear to opposition, so great dread had been instilled in the consequences attending any breach with the king, 
that it is probable, had he used his dispensing power without declaring it, no inquiries would have been made, and time might have reconciled the nation to this dangerous exercise of prerogative. But to invade at once their constitution, to threaten their religion, to establish a standing army, and even to require them by their concurrence to contribute towards all these measures, exceeded the bounds of their patience, and they began, for the first time, to display some small remains of English spirit and generosity. When the king's speech was taken into consideration by the commons, many severe reflections were thrown out against the present measures, and the house was with seeming difficulty engaged to promise, in a general vote, that they would grant some supply. But instead of finishing that business, which could alone render them acceptable to the king, they proceeded to examine the dispensing power, and they voted an address to the king against it. Before this address was presented, they resumed the consideration of the supply, and as one million two hundred thousand pounds were demanded by the court, and two hundred thousand proposed by the country party, a middle course was chosen and seven hundred thousand, after some dispute, were at last voted. The address against the dispensing power was expressed in the most respectful and submissive terms, yet was it very ill received by the king, and his answer contained a flat denial uttered with great warmth and vehemence. The commons were so daunted with this reply that they kept silence a long time, and when Coke, member for derby rose up and said i hope we are all englishmen and not to be frightened with a few hard words so little spirit appeared in that assembly often so refractory and mutinous that they sent him to the tower for bluntly expressing a free and generous sentiment they adjourned without fixing a day for the consideration of his majesty's answer and on their next meeting they submissively proceeded to the consideration of the supply and even went so far as to establish funds for paying the sum voted in nine years and a half. The king, therefore, had in effect, almost without contest or violence, obtained a complete victory over the commons, and that assembly, instead of guarding their liberties, now exposed to manifest peril, conferred an additional revenue on the crown, and by rendering the king in some degree independent, contributed to increase those dangers with which they had so much reason to be alarmed. The next opposition came from the House of Peers, which has not commonly taken the lead on these occasions, and even from the bench of bishops, where the court usually expects the greatest complacence and submission. The upper house had been brought, in the first few days of the session, to give general thanks for the king's speech by which compliment they were understood, according to the practice of that time, to have acquiesced in every part of it. Yet notwithstanding that step, Compton, Bishop of London, in his own name and that of his brethren, moved that a day should be appointed for taking the speech into consideration. He was seconded by Halifax, Nottingham, and Mordaunt. Jefferies, the Chancellor, opposed the motion and seemed inclined to use in that house the same arrogance to which on the bench he had so long been accustomed. But he was soon taught to know his place, and he proved by his behavior that insolence, when checked, naturally sinks into meanness and cowardice. 
the bishop of london's motion prevailed the king might reasonably have presumed that even if the peers should so far resume courage as to make an application against his dispensing power the same steady answer which he had given to the commons would make them relapse into the same timidity and he might by that means have obtained a considerable supply without making any concessions in return but so imperious was his temper so lofty the idea which he had entertained of his own authority and so violent the scheme suggested by his own bigotry and that of his priest that without any delay without waiting for any further provocation he immediately proceeded to a prorogation he continued the parliament during a year and a half by four more prorogations but having in vain tried by separate applications to break the obstinacy of the leading members he at last dissolved that assembly and as it was plainly impossible for him to find among his protestant subjects a set of men more devoted to royal authority it was universally concluded that he intended thenceforth to govern entirely without parliaments never king mounted the throne of england with greater advantages than james nay possessed greater facility if that were any advantage of rendering himself and his posterity absolute but all these fortunate circumstances tended only by his own misconduct to bring more sudden ruin upon him the nation seemed disposed of themselves to resign their liberties had he not at the same time made an attempt upon their religion and he might even have succeeded in surmounting at once their liberties and religion had he conducted his schemes with common prudence and discretion openly to declare to the parliament so early in his reign his intention to dispense with the test struck a universal alarm throughout the nation infused terror into the church which had hitherto been the chief support of monarchy and even disgusted the army by whose means alone he could now purpose to govern the former horror against popery was revived by polemical books and sermons and in every dispute the victory seemed to be gained by the protestant divines who were heard with more favorable ears and who managed the controversy with more learning and eloquence but another incident happened at this time which tended mightily to excite the animosity of the nation against the catholic communion louis the fourteenth having long harassed and molested the protestants at last revoked entirely the edict of nantes which had been enacted by henry the fourth for securing them the free exercise of their religion which had been declared irrevocable and which during the experience of near a century had been attended with no sensible inconvenience all the iniquities inseparable from persecution were exercised against those unhappy religionists who became obstinate in proportion to the oppressions which they suffered and either covered under a feigned conversion a more violent abhorrence of the catholic communion or sought among foreign nations for that liberty of which they were bereaved in their native country above half a million of the most useful and industrious subjects deserted france and exported together with immense sums of money those arts and manufactures which had chiefly tended to enrich that kingdom they propagated everywhere the most tragical accounts of the tyranny exercised against them 
and revived among the protestants all that resentment against the bloody and persecuting spirit of popery to which so many incidents in all ages had given too much foundation near fifty thousand refugees passed over into england and all men were disposed from their representations to entertain the utmost horror against the projects which they apprehended to be formed by the king for the abolition of the protestant religion when a prince of so much humanity and of such signal prudence as lewis could be engaged by the bigotry of his religion alone without any provocation to embrace such sanguinary and impolitic measures what might be dreaded they asked from james who was so much inferior in these virtues and who had already been irritated by such obstinate and violent opposition in vain did the king affect to throw the highest blame on the persecutions in france in vain did he afford the most real protection and assistance to the distressed huguenots all these symptoms of toleration were regarded as insidious opposite to the avowed principles of his sect and belied by the severe administration which he himself had exercised against the nonconformist in scotland end of section thirty eight chapter seventy part three recording by jim dennison j i m d e n i s o n voice dot com